If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. pray that right now you, you would just revive our hearts in a special way, that there would just be this really sense, of, a great sense of joy and anticipation when we open your word. We wouldn't come in just kind of weary from the week, but we would prioritize this time and we would set our hearts apart for you and we would set our attention on you and ask you right now, speak to us from your word. Like like right to my situation, what's going on in my life, Lord, speak to each one of us individually right where we're at. We know your word has that power, so we ask you to do that now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Um, one other quick, just kind of side note. Typically, I use the New American Standard when I'm teaching up here. And, and the reason I, I choose that version, there's a lot of good versions. It's not like the only one. The, the New King James is a good version. There's a lot of good versions. But, but I, I use it because it is the most literal translation, meaning it's the closest to the original language, whether it's the Hebrew or the Greek. And, and so I feel like it's just a really, really accurate translation. But on occasion, you guys have noticed that I highlight from the New Living Translation. The reason I do that is because it communicates really well. It's a thought-for-thought thought translation. So that means that it's trying to capture the thought more so than the literal word. And I like that sometimes when we're communicating, especially when you come across a difficult passage and it's hard to, to kind of decipher it. And, you know, the New King James, especially in the Old King James or, or the New American Standard. So sometimes it just communicates really well. So today, because we're coming across kind of a tougher passage to decipher, I'm going to use the New Living Translation because it just comes out really, really clear. I just want to let you guys know that. I know most of you guys don't use that translation, but that's what I'm going to be reading from. And you'll, you'll understand why when I do, because it just it speaks really clearly to um, this particular text. Now, we are doing a series through the book of Romans, and we're making our final push now in what we've coined as the bad news portion of the book of Romans. That first about two and a half chapters of the book of Romans is kind of the bad news that explains to us that we're all sinners, right? That we're all in need of a Savior. Paul wants that well-established in our heart so that when he gets to chapter 3, verse 24, he can then go into the good news. He's going to flip the switch. In fact, next week, we're going to get there. He's going to flip the switch from the bad news to the good news. And so as we're kind of finishing up on the bad news section, I want to kind of remind us of the progression here. Chapter 1 dealt with that kind of overt and obvious sinner, right? You remember that? There's this long list of sin at the end of chapter 1, and it's mostly talking about those things that we kind of don't even question as sin. Pretty clear, pretty open that that's what it is. Then the first portion of chapter 2 deals with the self-righteous Gentiles in the church, church people that may have thought too highly of themselves and looked down on others, right? They would have been the people that looked at, at the people in chapter one, those overt sinners, and be like, yeah, those guys are dirty, rotten sinners, but I got it all together kind of a deal. They don't get off the hook. 
Paul deals with them in the first half of chapter 2. And then as we get to to the second half of chapter 2, into where we're going today, he deals with the kind of confident self-righteousness of any Jewish people that were in the church of that day. We remind ourselves that the church was very, very integrated at that time, right? Because Paul would go around the Roman world, and what was he doing? He'd go in the synagogue first and preach the gospel to them. Some of them would get saved. Some of them would kind of give him a hard time. And when they started giving him a hard time, he then turned to the Gentiles, and he began to preach the gospel to them. And some of them got saved. And so all over the Roman world, Gentiles and Jews were coming together in faith, and that became the church. But there was always a danger for some of the Jewish people to feel superior because of their heritage, right? They're the Old Testament people of God, so surely they're probably better than these Gentiles that just kind of came into this Bible stuff here, you know, toward the end. And, And so there was a danger that they might feel superior because of their heritage or because they are the people that that God gave the the laws of Moses to. And so the end of chapter 2 is explaining that when it comes to salvation, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In fact, Paul says that very thing. And and, and a a sinful Jewish person is no different than a sinful Gentile person. We're, We're all a bunch of sinners and we all need Jesus, right? And so what he's explaining to them at the end of 2 is, that there's no Jewish privilege in regard to salvation, and that's the key to it. There's no free pass, if you will, right? They don't get a free pass to heaven just based on their heritage. And and many of the Jewish people believe that. They believe because they were God's chosen people. They're the people of the Bible. They were automatically headed for heaven, and that's still quite a strong sentiment and belief among some within the Jewish community today. Oftentimes, if you speak to somebody, um, especially if, you, if you're talking to somebody that's, that's a Jewish person that's non-religious, so, so they're not an Orthodox Jew, but, but they may celebrate Passover and, and some of the major festivals, kind of like nominal Christians celebrate Christmas and some of those type of things. And if you say, hey, listen, you need Jesus, we're like, no, we're, we're the people of God. We're, we're in kind of automatically. At least that's the, the sentiment that, that they feel. And John the Baptist, when he was telling the Jewish people that they needed to repent and prepare themselves for a Savior, he warned against this. And he says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. See see what they were doing? They were relying on their heritage. Like, Abraham's our dad. We're all good. He says, don't say that. For I say to you that that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He's like, like, don't get super cocky about the fact that, that you have this heritage and think that you're automatically in. You still need to get prepared for Savior and, and don't think that God, like he can handle it. He can raise up stones if he needs to, to fulfill the promises given to the nation of Israel. And so this is the attitude that Paul is warning against as we come to the end of chapter two. In fact, in verse 11, he says, there's no partiality with God meaning that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to salvation. Now, with that in mind, we start chapter 3. 
And Paul, in the beginning of chapter 3, anticipates some questions that the Jewish people are going to have based on what he's just said. And he now preemptively answers them. So the first question is there in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then what's the advantage of being Jewish? Is there any value in ceremonial circumcision? Right? So after explaining that there is that that the there's no automatic Jewish benefit in regard to salvation, there's no free pass to heaven, Paul anticipates the question is. Okay, so then what's the value in in being Jewish? What's the value in this heritage that I have as the people of God? Is there any benefit at all? And Paul answers that question in verse 2. He says, yes, there are great benefits. First of all, or, or first in importance, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God, with the Word of God. Now, when we come to chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul will give a longer list of Jewish privileges given to the nation of Israel at that time. But here, he only gives one example. He says, the chief and the first privilege for you guys, and he's Jewish as well, he says that the first and chief privilege of being Jewish is you were entrusted with the very words of God Almighty. Like you were given the whole revelation of God. He's speaking, of course, of the Old Testament because the New Testament was yet to be completely compiled. And and so he's saying, if you think about it, every single Old Testament writer was Jewish. The word of God was entrusted to you guys. Now, this is important for us to understand something at this point and to embrace it and to really grab a hold of it. That book that you hold in your hands right now is literally words from God, right? We call it the Word of God, but we get used to calling it the Word of God, and we do that passive, yeah, I got the Word of God here, but it's literally, actually words from God, a revelation from God himself to man. That means for you and I that our Creator wrote a book, Right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It literally means God breathed. It was written down by men. God used men to literally write it down. But every single word of it was inspired by God. Now, guys, that is of the utmost importance. Because you might hear that, yeah, 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 I got it. But it's of the utmost importance. Because when we get that, it will affect every aspect of our life. So ask yourself the question for just a moment and be honest about it. Do you believe that what you hold in your hands right now are really actually the words of God Almighty? Or do you think that they're just a compilation of some ancient writings of some religious guys that just wanted to give you some Suggestions for good living. There's a big difference in those two. There's a big difference. A lot of times, the counseling that I do is because people aren't taking God at His word. They're treating it as a well, kind of suggestions, you know, and I can take it or leave it. But when we get the fact that God Almighty has spoken 
There's only one response, isn't there? And that is for us to bring our life in line with his word. If it says it, I want to bring my life in line with it. And I may not like everything that it says. In fact, there's a lot of things in the Bible that it says that I don't like because I want to do things my way. I want to do it the way I want to do it, but it says I need to do it differently. And so who's going to win out in your life when, that, when you come to that crisis of belief? Do you win or does God win, right? There's a lot of things in there that it says that, that I don't like, but he's God and I'm not. But as soon as you start looking at the Bible as a bunch of suggestions, you kind of make yourself out to be God, right? If we don't start really understanding the truth that, that, that it's God's word, then we'll begin to pick through it. And, and we'll, we'll take the parts that we like and we'll cast aside the parts that we don't like. And what we're ultimately saying by doing that is we're saying, I know better than God. But, but that book, guys, it's not a book of suggestion. It's an all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise creator of everything who has written us a book to tell us who he is, to tell us who we really are, to, to save us from the pitfalls of this life, and to reveal his immense love to us in that he would leave heaven and come to earth and die for our sins to set us free that we might have him for all eternity. You see, so, so Paul is saying to these guys that are reading this letter that he's written to, to the Romans, and they're like, wow, what, what benefit is it? And Paul's saying, no, it's of great benefit because you've been entrusted with this. It's, it's of great value. You've been given literally words of God. You guys are, are, are the guardians of the word of God. You are the ones who the word came through and you are the ones who were supposed to preserve the word and you are the ones who are supposed to share the word. The second question that Paul anticipates deals with God's faithfulness. And that's in verse three and four. Look at verse three. It says, true, speaking of the nation of Israel, some were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean that God will be unfaithful? Then he answers the question, of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win your case. The question that's being posed here is, because of Jewish unbelief, did God then cancel his promises made to the Jewish people in his word? Because while a minority, a small group of people believed God's word, a small group of Jewish people believed the Old Testament prophecies and recognized Jesus as, as the Messiah, the majority of the people at the time of Christ and through the, the death and resurrection of Christ, the majority of people rejected and they remained in unbelief. And so the question here is, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, has God now backed out on his promises to the nation of Israel? Now, this is a really important theological point 
because there are very large, and there are quite a few, large denominations in our nation today that believe this, that believe that God has backed down on His promises to Israel, and their official position... Now, there may be people within these denominations that don't believe this, but the denominational official position towards Israel is that of replacement theology. Let me give you kind of the scope of it so you understand how many actually have this as their official position. The Roman Catholic Church, the Seventh-day Adventists, United Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, Presbyterian Church, Episcopal Church, Greek Orthodox, United Church of Christ, some Southern Baptists, not all, but some, plus some other smaller groups hold to a replacement theology. And replacement theology is the belief that God has rejected Israel and has now given the church all of the promises. So it's saying that now the church replaces Israel in the plan of God. You guys see what I mean? so That's why it's called replacement theology. They think that we, the church, have replaced Israel in God's plan because most of the Jewish people had rejected Jesus. God rejected them. That's their belief. And so that would mean then that all of the blessings and all of the promises that God once gave to Israel, he now gives to the church. All the covenants that were future for Israel have now been given to the church. Guys, that's just bad theology. And, and you don't get there by a real genuine study of the word of God. Because it's here, it's, it's right here. Verse 4, Paul answers the question and he answers it very forcefully. He says, of course not. Like, like that's the question. Has the church replaced Israel? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. And when he says, of course not here, this is the most emphatic way that you can say no in the Greek language. Some of your translations say, God forbid it, or absolutely not. One Jewish commentator said that it, it, it literally means, may it never even enter your mind such things as this. And when we come to, to chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul will go way deeper into this fact that God has not rejected Israel. In, in fact, chapter 11 starts in that way. It says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And he says it again, may it never be. The most forceful way that he can say no. And it's the reasoning behind it that's important to us. The reasoning of verse 4 is incredibly important. What he's saying here is that even if everyone else is unfaithful, God's still going to be faithful. Even if everyone else is a liar, God's still going to be true to his word. Now, guys, this is really, really, really important because we want God to be faithful to his promises. Why? Because he's made promises to us, right? See, I, I assume that in the mind of a replacement theologian, somebody that holds to this idea that God's rejected Israel, I assume that in their mind, they think that it's to the church's advantage. They must be saying to themselves in some way like, this is cool, now all of those blessings and all of those promises that were once for Israel, we now get them. Yay, hurrah, this is good for us. But what they miss is that it wouldn't be good for the church. Because if God has reneged on his promises to them, it would mean that God is unfaithful to his word, and then therefore God is untrustworthy. 
And therefore, we would have no confidence in his promises that he's made to us. And God's made some pretty important promises to us, right? I mean, Jesus told us this. John chapter 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. I want God to be faithful to that promise. Jesus said in John chapter eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. I want God to be faithful to that promise. Amen? But if he's reneged on his word to Israel, what confidence do I have? What assurance do any one of us have that he's not going to back out on, on the promises that he's made to us when we blow it? And this is a big issue, isn't it? Because it speaks to the character of God. But God has been faithful. And God will be faithful to Israel. Even when they've been unfaithful to him, he's always been there for them. Right? We want that. He's not backed out on his promises. He has not rejected Israel. In fact, I want you to look at this verse in Jeremiah chapter 31. It says this. We have it up there? Yeah. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for day by night, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night. Sorry, I messed that all up. The sun for light by day, and the fixed order in the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the seas so that the waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. So there's this fixed order, right? In our universe, the sun comes up every day and the moon comes up in the night and the waves roar in the ocean. He says, if this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. You see what God's saying? He says, as long as when you guys get up in the morning, the sun came up, And when you go out at night and you see the moon and the stars, as long as there are still waves in that ocean, God will not reject his nation, Israel. Not because they're so faithful, but why? Because he's so faithful, right? And we live by this truth. We only have hope because of this truth. Why? Because we fail all of the time. What if God backed out of his promises every time we fail? What a horribly miserable state to live in this this just constant state of fear that every time we blow it, God may abandon us. Can you imagine living like that? I blow it constantly. And you just be like, man, I wonder if God's still with me. Man, that whole John 5, 24 thing, I wonder if that still applies. He might have backed out by now. Backed out on Israel, he might back out on me. No, never. That's the point here. It says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. The Bible just says that's who he is. It's just who he is. He's just faithful. I love that. The third argument shows up in verse 5. The third argument, well, There's no nice way to say it. It's just kind of stupid. 
But obviously it's an argument that Paul has encountered in his travels because he mentions it not only here, but in chapter 6. So look at verse 5 or, or listen to the argument. But some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose. For it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? Then Paul puts in the caveat, this is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he qualify to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory. And some people might even slander us. Paul's saying that people are making up rumors about him, that he's claiming that the more we sin, the better it is. And all Paul has to say about that here is, those who say such things deserve to be condemned. When someone gets saved especially when they get saved from a really, really notorious life. It draws extra attention to God's grace, doesn't it? I mean, like, because if somebody gets saved, like, and they were just a, a good person and a generous person anyway and really likable and got along with everybody, they were stoked. We're stoked that they got saved and they came to Jesus. The light went on. But when this dude, like, used to walk around just beating up everybody and selling drugs and just like was just got out of prison for 15 years and was like killed 15 people on the way to church and just that kind of guy. When that guy gets saved, like it just sheds so much light on God's grace and his forgiveness. And it's kind of like the more notorious they were, the more radical the transformation, right? And the more radical the transformation, the incredible the, the grace of God and the forgiveness appears to us, the more it puts his, his grace on display. And that's just true, right? That, that's just a reality. Paul himself um, speaks of this, and he uses himself as an example in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul says, I'm the worst sinner that's ever been, but God saved me so that he could demonstrate his perfect patience to an unbelieving world. And so even God does it, right? He puts somebody on display who was a notorious sinner. But the argument that's coming out now is let's use that as an excuse to sin all the more, right? If my sin makes God look all the more righteous, if my lying highlights his truthfulness, if my sin makes a holy God look all the more holy, then actually I'm doing God a favor when I sin. Because what I'm doing is I'm putting on display His righteousness, His truthfulness, His holiness, and so forth. That's just stupid. That's what I'm saying. And Paul doesn't do much with it here. He just says those who say such things should be condemned. But when we get to chapter 6, Paul will deal with it a little more extensively and he'll explain that those who are thinking this way are going against the reason that Jesus went to the cross in the first place, right? He went there to set us free from sin and the bondage of sin. He went there to give us a new life in Christ where we're no longer under the power and the penalty of sin. And so we are to die 
than to this life of sin. That's where he's going to go when we get to chapter 6. We're to put it away. We're to reckon it dead. He says in chapter 6, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Right? That, that's the argument. Should we keep on sinning so God looks all the more gracious? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin live in it? We'll leave that there till we get to chapter 6. Then in verse 9, Paul is talking to his Jewish brethren and he says, Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. That's the whole point. That's what he's working towards in the second half of chapter 3. And then Paul uses this really common rabbinical practice next. And what he does is he strings together several passages. He takes seven Old Testament passages and he strings them together in rapid succession. And the reason that he does this is to kind of give an overwhelming sense of the biblical truth and the strength of his argument. So so he's just going to fire off right now seven different Old Testament quotes to support what he just said, that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the power of sin. So he just starts going, verse 10, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one seeks for God. No one has turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snakes' venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follows them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. And then he wraps it up with verse 19. And obviously the law applies to those whom it is given. So for this purpose, it keeps every person from having an excuse to show that the entire world is guilty before God, right? And I know you probably are tired of that point, but that's what Paul's been doing for this first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, driving this point that all of us have sinned. Now, I want to submit to you, as we wrap this up, that that, while it's been belabored by Paul in the first half of the book of Romans, is actually really vital. It's vital for you and I to understand ourselves rightly. See, if we don't see ourselves the way God sees us, then we're going to make major mistakes. Number one, we'll make one of several major mistakes. Number one would be this. If we don't understand ourselves as sinners, we're never going to seek for a Savior, right? That's just common sense. If we don't understand that we're a sinful people, we're never going to cry out to be saved. Number two is, if we see sin as no big deal, if you and I begin to toy with it and justify it, then we'll abuse grace. Talked about that in chapter 2. Number three is if you and I 
began to view others as real sinners and not really ourselves. Like, like, like we look at the people of chapter 1 and we go, yeah, those guys are totally sinners, but, but we're doing all right. Then what happens? We become self-righteous. And number four, if we don't understand what was explained to us in chapter 1, that judgment and the wrath of God that Jesus took upon himself for us, if we don't understand that, we'll never appreciate the cross. We'll never appreciate the sacrifice of Christ the way we should. And so what I submit to you is that the bad news portion is vital. Because next week, we're going to turn a corner in the book of Romans. We're going to go from the bad news with the consciousness now of our own sin, with the consciousness of the judgment and the wrath that our sin brings from a holy God. And we're going to begin to unpack for the rest of the book, the good news portion, right? And all of you guys are looking forward to that. And I pray, and I pray, and I pray that, that God in this time has, has deepened and impressed upon our heart the bad news, the reality of what's really in our heart. So that when we get to the good news, we'll appreciate it all the more. I pray that that God deepens our understanding and in turn deepens our appreciation for the fact that God Almighty Himself left heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and came to this earth. Like that we'd have a real appreciation for that. That He lived a sinless life that qualified him then to take our sin upon himself. That we would appreciate that that while being rejected and literally tortured by the very people that he came to save, Jesus was willing to choose the cross. He said, nobody takes my life, but I give it up willingly. And that on the cross, He took upon himself the full measure of the wrath of God. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago, the, the cup of wrath. What was in the cup? The wrath of God. He took the full measure that was intended to punish you and I for our sin and our rebellion. That, that our God and our creator, the creator of the whole universe, died a criminal's death on a tree he created bearing our guilt. Like, I want us to appreciate that. But then three days later, what happened? He rose, just like he promised he would, in glory and victory over death so that death has lost its sting for everyone that comes to him now. Man, so in this early study of the book of Romans, I'm so glad for the bad news portion of it. I'm so glad to have a deeper understanding, more reflection on the truth and the reality of my wretched human heart, so that next week when we read verse 24, I appreciate and I worship God all the more for the good news. Amen. Let's pray over that. Lord, that's what we need. 
We want to be a people that come to you in celebration for what you've done. Lord, we want to be a people that that never forget who we were apart from you and who we are in you. And so right now I pray, Lord, that that you you would allow us the time to reflect on the bad news and then the time to reflect on the beautiful grace that you've given to each one of us that have come to you by faith. Lord, remind us of our destiny apart from you and our eternal hope in you. Lord, we want that to be deep in our hearts so that we never become self-righteous with other people, always understanding that we're sinners speaking to other sinners. We're just redeemed sinners who want others to know the beautiful love and grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that we'd take these truths right now and turn them around to worship you. We take the beautiful love and grace you've bestowed upon us. We rise to our feet and raise our hands and worship you for what you truly were. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.